Welcome to episode four of the Things That Drive Us. This week we are talking to Alistair Gordon. Alistair is an excellent artist who lives and works in South East London. He teaches art, he runs a charity that promotes art in a faith-based context, and we talked about all of these things in the upcoming episode. I hope you enjoy it. Well, we are here today with Alistair Gordon, who is an artist based in... um, Southeast London. You're down in um, Merton, is that right? Yes, um, Tooting, uh, near Tooting Broadway Station. Yeah. And how long have you lived down that area of the world? Uh, uh, we've been in deepest, darkest Tooting for about two years altogether. Yeah. Um, but since I came to London, which was about 20 years ago, I've always been South London-ish in some yeah. sort of way. Yeah. And you're from Scotland originally, obviously, by your accent. But whereabouts do you hail yeah. from? Yes, Edinburgh. Um, my accent comes and goes a bit. When I'm up north, I'm far yeah. more Scottish. <laughs> and then down here, I tend to get a bit more cognified. So yeah. <laughs> it's sort of somewhere between the two. I guess it, it's a sort of middle England kind of accent. Yeah, well, that happens to a lot of people. You hear people's accents um, change radically when they're suddenly talking to their family members. It's interesting, isn't it? And, and I can see behind you, you've got a thistle, which... Yes. R- reminds me that you may have Scottish heritage yourself. I do. My, my grandfather was the last of us. Um, he was born in Dundee oh, um, right. yeah. back in the 1920s. But Let's see, the, the, the Scots have invaded England. Yeah, yeah, well, via India in our case. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, anyway, so how did you... Um, so you, you've been... How long have you been a professional artist now? Quite some years, isn't it? Yes, um, often hard to qualify that somehow, quantify it. Well, I graduated in 2002 from Glasgow and um, then an MA about 10 years later after that. And, and, and bit by bit, year by year, I've, I've been in the studio more. So mm-hmm. I'm now in the studio about three, sometimes four days a week and, yeah. and generate income uh, through the studio. But I also work with a charity and, and um, help run a charity as well uh, I teach a little bit too so all, all of that sort of um, in the Venn diagram of what being an artist professionally is you know yeah. all that comes together some things pay the bills some things are done for love and enthusiasm but but all of it I, I think is generally under being a professional artist yes so was it was it an art school you went to in Glasgow was that your sort of um, formal training if you like I did, yes. I trained at the ill-fitted Glasgow School of Art. that has that a, burnt down. Yeah, it has an awful tendency of burning down. Yes, yeah. it's done it twice in, in the last couple of years ago. So I was there way before any fires, and I was there at the turn of the millennium and had a great time at Glasgow, I have to say. And yeah, it was, it was a really positive experience for me at Glasgow School of Art. Uh, and then my later training was Wimbledon School of Art. That was about 10 years later, as I say, and that was my MA. Yeah. Um, and I've done a few evening courses as well, curiously, to sort of brush up on particular skill sets. Um, yeah. uh, at art school, you're not often taught the mechanics of painting, as strange as that sounds. Um, yeah. Um, but, you know, simple things like colour theory and composition and, and tone aren't always available on the, the syllabus. So I've done a few evening classes as well to, yeah. um, forgive the pun, but brush up on my <laughs> <laughs> my technical skills. Yeah. 
So what was the sort of motivation that attracted you into art in the first place? I mean, I've all, always been interested in art ever since I was a lad and, and yeah. had sketchbooks with me. Um, as a teenager, I lived in Blackburn in Lancashire with my family, but my childhood was in a little village called Ballater, which mm. is in the lowlands of Scotland. And my, my dad was a head teacher up there. Um, and there was the most spectacular landscape, you see, and not really much to do in that village. Yeah. Say for walk around the landscape or draw yeah. the landscape. So um, it got under my skin very early on. Um, mm. Parents were always very supportive of that. I think it helped that my sister was a scientist and had um, a, a financially viable career ahead of her. Yeah. So the younger brother could <laughs> indulge in the less financially viable pursuit of the creative arts. Yeah. Um, but it's always been there to some extent. And I think going to art school hmm. sealed the deal yeah. for me. Actually, my foundation course, which was in Edinburgh at the Leith yeah. School of Arts, where I now teach, hmm. um, that really sealed things for me. And it was uh, we had really excellent tutors there, and uh, I caught the bug. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. So, I mean, what did you what did you do then for the 10 years between graduating and the um, MA? Then? Or was that a question of trying to build your career up or were you doing? Yeah. Something? Yeah. Um, yes. A little bit of that building the career up like most graduates, bit of this, bit of that in the studio as much as possible. Um, unpaid in yeah. the studio, trying to make ends meet. Um, I did a bunch of stuff. I worked for a charity for a couple of years in various guises. I mm. worked in a bar for a bit. I um, managed to pick up some bits and pieces of teaching here and there at secondary schools um, as a technician, uh, and then more latterly at art schools, helping out in foundation courses and things like that. Yeah. Um, and then a few years ago, some pals and I set up this thing called Morphe Arts, Hmm. which is a charity, a faith-based charity supporting early career artists. And that, that, that surprisingly became a fairly stable income for a few years. Yeah. And, and that afforded opportunity then for me to be in the studio more. Hmm. Um, I also happened to marry a very wonderful and sympathetic woman who allowed me to continue this indulgence of working in a studio without bringing in much money. And um uh that certainly helped so it was just bit by bit you know opportunity yeah. by opportunity until eventually after the ma i got picked up by a gallery called bear space in yeah. deptford run by julia alvarez and um that was a real boost both to confidence you know i think crikey you know that it, someone likes the art somewhere mm. and there were a few sales through through that and that started to help things um in terms of the finances but some artists have a very steep trajectory um, yeah but the majority of us i think have this just gradual <laughs> bit by bit bit of work here a bit of work there you know and in in the course of about 15 20 years you look back and think gosh suddenly i am in a position where it is kind of working out financially sort of and i am in the studio a lot of the time making interesting things yeah. um you know, but but it, that's happened through a sort of gradual trajectory of being a bit um, diehard and stuck in the mud. And yeah, I suppose a few years ago, I realised 
I'm probably not very good at doing anything else. So, <laughs> <laughs> so this is it for better or worse. I'm, I'm sort of I'm stuck myself in this, uh, yeah. in this art, art career. Well, I think people have a false perception of how people make it into the art world. I mean, I remember hearing Grayson Perry saying it took him about 10, 15 years before he was, make, he was breaking even. Right, on, yes. On, on his art, which was quite a revelation because someone like him, you think of having suddenly exploded onto the scene, but it's, it's not really oh, true. Exactly. Yeah. Or very reassuring. Yes, yeah. I read that little book he wrote, um, Playing to the Gallery, a few years ago, and yeah. um, he describes some of his trajectory in that, including a bit of teaching. Uh, as well and he didn't really quote-unquote make it you know uh, until he was a little later in his career yeah I think in his 40s or 50s perhaps when he was nominated for the Turner Prize and um, but all those years of just slogging away and and working at it and developing his craft and and building a reputation and networking uh, you know I think of artists like Rose Wiley as well who yes who's in her 80s yeah yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and won John Moore's painting prize a few years back um, mm. in her late 70s, early 80s. And yeah. she was in that fab show, The Haywards, recently um, mixing it up. Um, you know, so um, hope for all of us yet, I suppose, <laughs> when we look, look at people like that. That's true. That's true. Um, so your work is predominantly known for the sort of Trump lawyer effect. So indeed, yes. For those who don't know, it's the sort of uh, deception that what you're looking at is a, a sort of physical object, like a piece of paper, but in fact, it's it's painted on a flat surface. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, um, and for those of you who've seen your work, you're probably I don't know, perhaps your most famous piece is the um, uh, the um, paper airplanes or, or the masking tape pieces. I don't, don't know if you'd agree with that or not. Yeah, I would. They're the ones that seem to come back again. Yes. Like, uh, it, it's in some ways that it, if there was a greatest hits album out there, yeah. you know, greatest hits of my studio painting, then the masking tape and the paper darts would be in there in the mix yeah. somewhere. And they've become a, a kind of a blessing and a curse in some ways. You know, it's... Yeah lovely to make an, an image that has traction and that resonates. Um, but um, there are times you think, oh gosh, have I become known as the masking tape guy or the paper yeah. plane guy, you know, yeah. and other art forms are, are available. But, but in a way, those, those images, um, you know, they're quite graphic, they're quite recognisable, and they, they seem to scratch an itch uh, a few years ago. Um, and they are illusionistic. So when you look at them, you know, as you say, you, you, mm. you think you're looking at tape, you think you're looking at masking tape. So they play with the idea of a painting as an illusion. Mm. Um, and also the idea of a painting as um, both artifice, um, yeah. but also an artifact. You know, it, it's a, a thing, an object that's three-dimensional. Yeah. Um, and I normally paint onto wooden panels and you can see the wood grain there from the wood, which from a distance um, may, be, um, may be considered to be painted itself. So you're sort of left with questions around what's been painted and what's not yeah. been painted. So, you know, various um, ruminations on, on the nature of painting and it's the reality that a painting um, produces but but it, but it's all born out of that still life tradition yeah um actually called Codlibet, a, a sort of slightly lesser known 
corner of trompe l'oeil illusionistic painting mm. um it developed in the in northern europe in the 17th century and and um still life artists who would paint everyday objects to appear as though they were pinned or taped yeah. onto a surface um, and that whole genre was very deeply connected with political activity at, at the time no oh, right um so one artist called edward collier for example would paint paint the newspaper and he had a bit of a tendency to paint an article about the king of france at the time uh, and he was very um well he didn't like the king to put it mm. politely and he painted this article about the king's speech over 75 times um as if to say this is an illusion don't trust yes. this guy don't trust these words you know but you might not think that by looking at the painting you think it's just a rather pleasant clever even slightly gimmicky painting of a um, newspaper hmm. but for Colloway, we could imagine this a, a serious deep political uh, subversion at play and and i quite like that idea that a painting uh, at first can be a, a rather whimsical light hmm. like it's a touch pleasant thing and then you sit around for a while and look at it and you think, crikey, this person actually is making some kind of political point uh, or, or, or trying to ask some, some deeper questions. So, so anyways, my, my paintings sort of fit into that, that yeah. tradition. And um, my attempt is to find a, a contemporary language uh, to, to work with as we you know, keep asking the, the age-old questions of painting, about what painting is and what it means today and how it relates to new mm. digital medium and and so forth yeah yeah so when you start a piece do you sort of um consciously plan it do you have a sort of theme an idea that you're wanting to express or does it start off as a just sort of an image and grow from there or or is it both this is that's an interesting question of the moment because my practice has slightly shifted in mm. recent months and in years so uh, a couple of years ago I would plan more or less everything. I'd be quite meticulous about it and, and make preparatory studies and sketches and not really move to the final painting until I'd worked out all the problems in advance. And, and I find now actually that I'm working more intuitively, more gesturally. Um, I'm working much more from observation of an object in the real, so to speak, as if, as if to say in the physicality Whereas beforehand, I'd be working from photographic images. Um, so the more recent paintings are, are, are less paintings of objects and they're yeah. more paintings of paintings, actually. Yeah. Um, and and they, they present as much more gestural, much more loose and mm. intuitive. And they're really enjoyable to make. I have to say, I, you know, it's a great delight being in the studio. They're, they're very fun paintings to make. Um, and they may look quite different to those who haven't seen my painting in a while. Mm. They may at first look like they're quite far removed from the masking tape and the paper planes. Um, but they're really not. You know, they're still involving those questions of the real and the hyper real, the representational. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm much more interested in how images are functioning. Hmm. Uh, these days and how, how paintings uh, and gesturally marks uh, function. Yes, I mean, I have to say, whenever I've tried to consciously plan a painting before I do it, I think it's only worked once. Hmm. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. yeah. I've only got one yeah. painting that's come out in the way that I conceptualised it before I started it. Yeah. Um, 
all the others I, I find that I end up just becoming much more instinctual and yes uh, reacting to the image and however I feel at the time and you know whatever else is going on rather than sticking to the plan I came up with when I first came up with the idea yes do you find as well then that sometimes paintings almost seem to have almost like a mind of their own yeah or or rather the process of painting is a little bit like a conversation with the painting itself yes where, you know you're sort of responding to what's already there and then you know there, there might be a mark that occurred that was unexpected mm. um or a color has a different effect than how you imagined it would yes work yeah. but rather than scraping off and trying again you know you sort of embrace that and respond to it and, and it becomes something quite different you, you find that a little bit as well then with your I do I do practice yeah um so there are a couple of things that I that I do which I often find produce interesting results one is mm. to try producing an image which is beyond my technical abilities to actually produce mm. yeah well very good yeah yeah so you end up having to make interesting, even without thinking about it, you make interesting choices and decisions yes. in order to be able to render something. Yeah. The other thing is I'll have an original picture, which or maybe a photograph I've taken in photo format, yeah. and then I will try and render it onto, for example, a square canvas. So you're having to change the perspective. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's sort of a different challenge than yeah. as you move from format to format. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I find that much the same as I change scale. Something that works in a preparatory sketch or study yeah. um, in the small, and most of my studies are quite small. By the time I stretch up to a big canvas, and there's one in the studio at the moment that's over two meters wide. Is that the one that behind functions. you? Yes, the one behind me. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Um, and I have preparatory sketches for that that are really just, you know, the size of my A4 sketchbook. Um, and, and marks made in the micro translate very differently when they're in the macro yeah you know even even just the movement of a wrist and a small painting is very different from the movement of the elbow and the arm mm. and the shoulder in a big painting um so you know you're always learning you know and, and the paintings are teaching you things about yeah. about what painting is and uh you know it's no wonder this this begins to feel all the more like a lifelong learning process and mm. um, uh, uh, Lucian Freud, uh, in his latter years, used to write about how time, time is running out. Um, in fact, we we have a mutual friend in Hugh Mendes, and yes. uh, this this is really Hugh's story to tell. You could ask him about mm. it. But at some point, he had a, a brief correspondence with Lucian Freud, and if I remember right, um, Lucian wrote to him saying, "You know, time is running out. Time is running out." Yeah, and it it really feels like that. The more I paint, the more I one appreciate great art of of the masters in the past, yeah. And um, but increasingly, if, if I'm being honest, feel that distance between myself and and the those great masters. And I appreciate them all the more. But I think, oh, crikey, I've just got so much to learn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To get to that that point, so it's it's um wonderful. It's a rather humbling process as well. Well, I find it very interesting when you post pictures of your um, sketchbook on Instagram. Mm. I think your sketchbook's very interesting. Um, and so, I mean, are you one of these people who just carries it around with you everywhere? Or do you set out on sort of specific artistic missions to go and draw in the landscape or or does it do very? 
I tend to carry it most places. And there is a danger in saying that because at some point, someone will, if they listen to our conversation, mm. they'll stop me and I'd say, have you got your sketchbook on you? you know, and, and that might be the moment I don't have it. Mm. Um, I generally do. I have three sizes of sketchbooks. Um, I have this sort of size, um, which if you're listening to this rather than seeing it, as I imagine most people will, this yeah. is a sort of, I'm holding up um, a roughly A5 sketchbook. Yeah. And then I have a slightly larger sketchbook, that yeah. size. They're the two sizes I carry around with me. One of them's hardback, hmm. which is heavier. Um, the softback one slips in the pocket quite nicely and it's hmm. nice for a little doodle. And um, the hardback one, a little bit heavier. Um, and therefore carrying around. And then I have larger ones just reaching to get it now, which is this size. Yes. Um, and that is a, a... A four, probably. A four, I think, is or maybe even a two or a three, rather, or somewhere in between. And they stay in the studio. Mm. Um, and the larger sketchbooks are for working out ideas, yeah. basically. Uh, so, um, yeah, I, I tend to have quite a lot of uh, sketchbooks knocking around at at any given time and and they're a little bit private and a bit secret and um a, a, a gallerist who's been really helpful in my creative journey encouraged me to sort of bring them out of the studio a bit and and show them a bit more and bring some of those looser marks into the painting so that they're, they're becoming a bit more visible and i started posting them on instagram as well and um in some ways, they're quite different from the very photorealistic paintings because they're very... They are very different. They are very different. Yeah. Mm. I, I, can, I can see why you, why you view them as private because when you see them, it, you, you do get the feeling you're seeing a bit into your inner life. Um, yes. And I guess that's what's attractive <laughs> yeah. about them. So yeah. do you always plan a painting beforehand? Do you ever sort of just start on a painting and let it grow organically? Or do you always have an idea that, you've conceptualized beforehand that you're then I had tried more recently to begin a painting without prior study hmm. and invariably it doesn't work yeah and I'll get about halfway through and then there are so many problems with the painting that need resolving hmm. that I then start to make studies yeah um, so I might take a photo of the painting for example print that out stick it in a sketchbook and then work on that photo to try and resolve the yeah. problems. And if I've managed to resolve them, then I go back to the painting again. Mm. So I somehow always end up making studies and sketches mm. and preparatory work, whether it's before or whether it's in the middle, that that seems to be the way I'm sort of wired yeah. as a, a painter. Um, yeah, and I, I think most painters probably work in that way to some extent. It's partly why it takes so bloody long, you know, to to, yeah. um, to get to the final thing. Um, and you see a painting in a gallery and, and at best it looks like it's been made effortlessly. But, mm. you know, with a really great painting, you can just see the work that's gone on in the backdrop, you know, kind of years of work to get to that. Some yeah. minimal gesture. It's like you know, Picasso famously once said to Michael Parkinson very shortly before he died. Parkinson had uh, seen him making a really quick painting, um, and he painted it in a matter of seconds. And and Parky asked him how much it cost and it would sell for, and, and Picasso said, you know, a couple of thousand pounds. And Michael Parkinson said, "That's outrageous! How can 
something that took you a matter of seconds be sold for thousands of pounds. And Picasso very wisely said, it didn't take me a few seconds. He said, I've been working on that painting for 65 years. Yeah. And I, I, I love that idea that a painting is an accumulation of study and work and growth yeah. and personality that has a very long shadow back through your uh, trajectory as an artist. But sometimes it just comes together in a matter of seconds in that yeah. moment. Yeah, that's very true. Um, now, you mentioned Morphe Arts, which is um, a face-based art group. Um, yes. Which you helped found. And uh, you're a Christian and a practicing Christian. I am, yes. Yeah. And, um, I mean, just as a casual observer, you, I, maybe it's because I know you and I've met you and I know that your face is important to you and, and mm. forms part of your art, but it does seem to me that it's obviously there. Um, mm. I don't know, is, is that something you consciously think about or do you think it just turns up whether you want it to or not? I do. I do consciously think about it. And, yeah. and it does crop up as well. Yeah. <laughs> so probably both. And um, I mean, it's a funny one in a way, if you were to look at my paintings, you, you wouldn't think, hey, this is um, a Christian person. And I, I don't really paint motifs or religious symbols, things that are associated with yeah. religious systems. Um, you know, there's no paintings of Jesus or crosses mm -hmm. or doves or waterfalls or, or or things like that hmm. um but but if you know if if a, a, a faith-based influence on painting was reduced to certain motifs that, that's yeah. quite a sort of narrow way of thinking about um, yeah, yeah, yeah. influence in a way um so while, while my paintings aren't overtly of a religious nature you know the fact that i i, I am a christian that that well because that informs so much of who i am hmm. In the same way that anyone who holds any significant faith or philosophy or political view, yeah. um, you know, that's bound to affect the sort of work that they make. Um, you know, I think, I think of the artist Andy Warhol, yeah. for example, who was um, very famously Catholic and um, attended mass very regularly. But you look at his paintings and you wouldn't think, you know, that's a Catholic painting. No, um, you wouldn't. No, this is true. Um, but if you know a little bit about Warhol and a bit about what he believed, you maybe start to see little in indications in his work, certain subjects he returns to, um, certain ideas that he's interested yeah. in. And, and I think for me, it's like that. There's a, a kind of interweaving of a personal faith mm. with um, a public art practice. Yeah. And at times like this in, in, a, a conversation that um, may go out on online, you know, mm. I identify as a, as a Christian, but I don't have an agenda to prophetize or preach per se through my painting. But, um, you know, there are ideas that I'm interested in as a Christian yeah. um, that find their way in, into, into the painting. Uh, well, what, I mean, one series that you did during lockdown that I was very interested in was your Burnt Matches series. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Which is, I understand it, the matches that from lighting a candle when you pray during the day. Mm. And then you would paint from them, um, paint from those matches. It's, it's that sort of a fair summary of a 
Yeah, yes, that's a nice description of them. Yes, indeed. I um, Here in my studio, I have um, a candle actually in front of me as we're speaking, and yeah. um, I light that candle in the morning and I say uh, a liturgical prayer. Hmm. And I tend to do that most mornings as a way of beginning the studio um, day. And in lockdown, I found myself um, praying for the creative arts uh, and praying for friends in the arts and praying for our our world, you know, under these extraordinary circumstances we found ourselves in for the last two years or so. Um, and I wanted to make a painting that that somehow reflected and, and evoked that that process of prayer in the studio, mindful that approaching questions of of prayer and religion can be problematic at best in mm. in the art world today. And so I started to paint the matches that I used to light the candle. So in a way, they they weren't so much paintings of prayer, but paintings of the the memento or the relic or yep. the process of the prayer itself. And, and I made one painting more or less every day during that first lockdown yeah. of the three matches that I'd used at three points in the day to pray. So they were a record of prayer, but they were also a record of the pandemic, you know, mm. one for each day. Um, and in the end, there were, I mean, there were over a hundred of them painted uh, mm. and they made quite an interesting little set of yeah. quite a sort of subtle understated record of of prayerful reflection of lament um through the year and uh of course lament is a uh, um you know very interesting genre in 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 the canon of still life painting yeah uh, i think of genre paintings from 17th 18th century of the memento mori and vanitas paintings where a candle would often be a stand-in for the fleeting nature of life, um, a skull, a very obvious symbol for mortality, a, a faded flower to show the fleeting nature of beauty. Uh, and these paintings that had a religious undertone and, and, and arguably painted with religious intent, mm. but yet found their way into the mainstream and would resonate with people you know, from a variety of backgrounds, um, religious or or not and yeah my hope was those matches also would have some resonance with those who saw them you know regardless of their belief system or or not well they certainly had a resonance with me and it's interesting um i think when you produce a piece of art that it can have a meaning for somebody else that you didn't anticipate or intend yes. to put in there so mm. I am very close to my godfather, who is a very committed Christian. Mm. And so I bought him one of your paintings. Oh, how wonderful. Yeah, because huh. one of the match paintings, because it seemed, mm. I don't know, it somehow it seemed to me a real bridge between, you know, our two worlds, if you like. Mm. My interest in art, mm. his, his face, um, and uh, somehow the image you produced in his matches some, somehow managed to for me anyway represent a unity between those things so i wanted him to have it i don't know if he interprets yeah, yeah. it in the same way i haven't asked him to be honest i wonder yeah it's a lovely gesture on your part and uh, mm. um yes at best art can be a bit like that i think it can yeah. be a bit like a bridge in a way it's a nice way of describing a painting yeah. and, um you know it helps us to empathize i think you know we, we can imagine 
someone else's position we, we might not hold that position ourselves yeah. um, but we can imagine it and, and uh, a work of art can help us to empathize in that yeah in that way and um, yeah what a lovely present from a godson to a godfather <laughs> so tell me a yeah. bit about morphe arts what sort of mm. um prompted you to set that up in the first place and, and what's its sort yes. of basic mission well, we've been running Morphe for 10 years now. Oh, wow. Um, so it's been on the go a while. And it was set up um, partly because some friends and I were looking to see if there were other Christians around in the art world who were making things that were credible and interesting. And, um, you know, actually in the art world, you know, a lot of the Christians that we knew who um, were painting weren't really interested in or connected to the actual art world themselves yeah um and we also noticed that there are very few possibilities to talk about things of faith without it getting a bit weird or awkward or offensive somehow yeah. so um, we set up this group partly for ourselves to have some conversation about what it might mean to be a credible voice for religious communities in the art world why mm. is it a bit of a taboo is it still a bit of a taboo um some of the questions around that um, and um, we had recently graduated ourselves and we were looking for some mentoring support to, to help us get to the next stage in our art career. So we sort of fuse those two things together. Yeah. The, the you know, desire for professional mentoring with this interesting uh, about things of faith and art. Um, and that was sort of the foundation point for Morphe Arts. And um, people, other people seem to resonate with it. So we, ran a few conferences we put in a few exhibitions we, we had a monthly gathering in scotland and and in london yeah to talk about all these things um and then we've managed to get a bit of funding from some lovely people and uh um what started as a group became a charity a bunch of a charity it's a bit easier to do things like fundraising and you can get yeah. things like trustees and treasurers and um, and from there, we're able to set up the website. So the thing's sort of grown through the years. And um, we now work with a couple of hundred artists around the UK, from yeah. mostly, mostly from um, a faith um, system, um, but not exclusively. And often people come to our gatherings or, or events because they're interested in that sort of unusual interface between faith and art. Yeah. Um, as the, the writer James Elkins put it in, in his book a few years ago, The Strange Place of, of Religion in Contemporary Art. Um, so we've got a little staff team of uh, four of us. Um, during lockdown, things got interesting because we couldn't do the live meetings. Yes. So um, uh, like a lot of charities, we, we panicked a bit <laughs> and then discovered Zoom like the rest of the planet. <laughs> and... Uh, um, and all our all our lectures are online on Zoom now. Yeah. We we do we still do one on one mentoring. Um, we do little classes. Um, and that's all online, and we're just starting to think about doing things in the real again. I think we're nearly there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I think folks, you know, are beginning to have a sort of interest to come back together again. So um, we'll be doing some of that stuff uh as well but it's an interesting group it's a joy to work with it and we'll, we'll we'll keep doing it for as long as people want to turn up but you know if people stop turning up or if the funding stops then then we'll stop and do something else um it is interesting because i think you're right i think there is still um a taboo about being overt being uh, not necessarily uh, overt about your faith in art but 
mm. being an, an overt personal faith in, in in a sort of public art arena. I think yes. I think there that there is a sort of um, there is a taboo about that. But I, it's interesting to to me because I think that might also be shifting. Mm. Mm. Um, and because one of the things that I've seen um, is the there is an art prize you've probably heard of the Jimmy I think it's the Jamil art prize which is um, I came sure across I that one right yeah I came across it a few years ago in the VA okay and it's an art prize for Islamic or Islamic inspired art oh interesting yeah um, and they had people from all over the world displaying oh. their stuff in this small, quite small gallery in the V&A. Right. Um, and some of them are more overtly religious than others. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I was, that was, the, but, and that was, I think, 2018, I saw that. And that was the first time in a long time I'd seen a mm. sort of overt connection between mm. art and religion. And I don't know whether it's, it might be just of the observation bias thing. Once you've seen something and you're sort of alert to it, you begin to see it more yeah. and more and more. Yes. But I, I, I do wonder if that is a taboo that's beginning to break down. And, and it's also, in a way, a taboo that doesn't make any sense. Because you think the vast influence that faith and religion has played on art. Well, indeed. Yeah. 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 If, we, if we find it difficult to talk about the connection between faith and art or religion and art then there's a lot of art history that we're going to find very yeah. problematic yeah and you know you could even argue that certainly in the west the foundations of the art system as we have it are, are built on great works commissioned by religious organizations you know stuff yeah. commissioned by churches for better or worse for many centuries and i i agree will and you know i know i'm supposed to say because i i do identify openly as as a christian um, you know, I, I'm supposed to say, I think there are more opportunities to talk about things of faith. And, mm. I, and, I, and I would instinctively look for that. But, but it is something I think about quite deeply and quite often. And I do notice the difference, even from when I graduated from Glasgow, where it really did feel taboo. Mm. And um, even I remember my tutor saying, just don't talk about your faith, you won't get any work. And I remember thinking at the time, crikey, if that's true... Mm. then that means for any person who identifies in a religious system, that means there's an entire industry that you are barred from entering yeah. on the grounds of your religious belief. And that sounds an awful lot like discrimination, yeah. if that is the case. So I remember hearing that from my tutors when I was you know, 25 or so. I'm thinking that can't possibly be true because that is just um, unjust, it seems. Um, and at the time, you know, I'd mentioned James Fox, he just brought out the strange place of religion in contemporary art. And his argument there is the problem's not so much artists being religious people. It, it's more um, when they are sincerely religious, you know, when they really believe it. Mm. Um, and all the more when they really think you should believe it, too, that that's mm. where it gets problematic and um um, you know, it starts to sound like fundamentalism and propaganda mm. and, and, and things that are very much at a discord with um, a free thinking, liberal, tolerant art world that, that we are a part of. Um, more recently, you know, I, I read people like Jonathan Anderson, who I, who's a friend and he's a, a writer. And 
Um, he writes about this quite often as well, that, that the issue is, um, so he wrote a, a co-wrote a book um, called Modern Art and the Life of a Culture that came out yeah. a few years ago. And he argues the problem not so much amongst artists, but more in critical circles, that, that when it comes to the critique, that there's a, a problem there in writing about and critiquing artists who talk about faith, unless they're being cynical or unless they're being, you know, um, you know attacking things of faith. It's when it's sincere in critical circles, that's the problem. But, you know, I really do think things are, are changing. I think of big, um, big hitter shows like, they, well, we were talking about Andy Warhol mm. a moment ago. There's a show on right now at the Brooklyn Museum of the religious leanings of Andy Warhol. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there was a, a show at K21 in Dusseldorf a few years back called The Problem of Gods, all, all about how we represent the divine in works of art. And, and artists like John Baldessari were in that, Francis Bacon, James Terrell. Um, in fact, John Baldessari and Meg Cranston did something at the ICA in London around the turn of the century. What was it, 100 artists see God? I think. Oh, yes, yes. You know, there are a few projects that, that accumulate to, I think, a very decent argument that, that actually we are moving into a different way of thinking about faith systems in the art world and our, our generation seems more the generation to talk about it rather than seeing religion as something that is divisive which i agree it has been and can continue to be divisive that mm. to not talk about things that are deeply important to people actually that in itself is a divisive act uh, and it assumes well you make assumptions about what people believe and who they are yes without never actually asking them <laughs> and, and you may end up having more in common than you realize, or um, you may end up changing their mind on it, or you may end up changing your mind on it. And uh, I, for one, I'm certainly open to being persuaded otherwise, as I hope to be able to persuade other people too. Mm. So yeah, it's all very interesting. And I, I, you know, I do hope that times are changing on that. Um, um, but, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll wait and see. Um, Was it that dialogue and the sort of desire to see that change that because you've written a book, haven't you? Um, I have, yes. I was commissioned to write Why Art Matters by mm. InterVarsity Press. It came out in June. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's written to, um, it really specifically to a, a, a Protestant audience. So it, yeah. I'm, I'm not attempting to write, it's not, it's, it's not an attempt to write to the whole world. And it's written through the lens of Christianity. Um. But the book is looking at how Christian faith and art do and can interconnect with one another. So it's written from a personal perspective, mm. a theological perspective, um, but also there's a little bit of kind of art history and critique in there. Yeah. And um, um, yeah, I mean, I think, that, you know, the faith systems have a lot to say about, about the creative arts and yeah. the starting point of a lot of scriptures including the, the Christian one, is, is a God who is creative. And uh, in the Christian tradition, uh, a creative God implies that all acts of creativity in some way can manifest a divine presence. Yes. Which is quite a wonderful thought. Book, mm. Yeah. 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 Well, it means that, that actions from everything from a painting to cooking a meal to... Um, making baked potatoes with your kids in the <laughs> kitchen, you know, all, all of that can, can demonstrate a divine presence, 
yeah. which gives a great dignity to everyday domestic activities. Well, um, speaking of kids, you, you have a, a, a daughter. Who, how old is she now? I do. Yeah, Lily's nine now. Yeah, yeah coming yeah. on 19, she's got the teenage fire in her, for sure. Yes, <laughs> I, I know that well. Um, my girlfriend's daughter is 10, and it's sort of... Ah, yes. Dealing, it, it's odd, isn't it? You're dealing both with someone who's very young, and but who's very mature at the same time. Nicely put. It's a really interesting age. Yeah, yeah, there's that. Um, Lily has that desire for independence and yeah. fight against mum and dad, but still likes cuddles in the evening, yeah. you know, and the assurances yeah. of a child. It's a lovely, um, fascinating age. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Because what, one of the things that I saw was you were doing an illustrated book with her over the lockdown. We did. Yeah. So we did. Did she write the story and you do the illustration then? Was that how? It, it was a bit of both. So yeah. some days she would have an idea for a story. Mm. And I'd say, hey, let's do this. And you know, it was it was the first lockdown. So there was very little going on at that time. And so we could spend a whole day, whole afternoon. And um, technically it was homeschooling. Yeah. But let's not say that to the school. Because... <laughs> <laughs> you just get through homeschooling as best you can, is 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 mine the experience oh, of everyone I've met. Goodness, yes. Yeah. yeah. I'm Anna and I, my wife and I had some thought about doing homeschooling prior to lockdown and any aspiration for that has just been quashed by the, the actual experience of homeschooling. Um, yeah, you just sort of model through as best you can. And, and so we spent these afternoons writing stories and um, she came up with an idea. You know, one of them was, what would it be like, Dad, if there was a volcano in, mm. in Tooting, where we live? Oh, well, that is, that is such a great idea for a story. Mm. So she came up with the idea. I would then make a painting of the IDM and then that painting would help stimulate more ideas in the story so okay. so we'd sort of work together in that way or I'd start writing and she'd make a drawing to illustrate the story and that would spark an idea for me then to do something else so I made this painting of the volcano and then she started to write about this volcano erupting with books yeah and, and you know and what if this in a way this this sort of um destructive force actually ended up being this great um, blessing to the world, you know, throwing mm. knowledge and ideas out into the world. And uh, she came up with that. And I thought, goodness me, the imagination of a nine-year-old. Yes, I know. It's quite spectacular, isn't it? Beautiful. Yeah. Um, and another occasion, we, we were writing about weather. And I asked her, I said, why don't we write a story about strange weather? And she said, yeah, imagine if it rained lollipops. <laughs> <laughs> and that was just so good. So we started to write that story. And, and then we started to think together. You know, I said to Lily, what would that be like? And Lily said, well, it'd be brilliant because you could have a, a, a lolly anytime you wanted. But she said, what if it hit you on the head? It would be <laughs> quite sore, wouldn't it? And you'd be all sticky and the ground would be all messy. And, and so the stories almost became about really interesting, cool, wonderful events that actually could be quite problematic or problematic events that, that actually end up being, you know, brilliant for you. Yeah. So they became almost a little um, philosophical, you know, that, that they became a little bit about the, sort of the joy and the curse of, of the lockdown situation. Um, so we wrote about 10 altogether and made it into a little book um, 
I have some thought maybe to even self-publish it in some way. And yeah, um, you know, I think Lily would quite enjoy that. And it might be a nice little memento for our lockdown year. Um, I don't know how many people would buy it, but we would at least have this this little memento together. Yes. Mm. You were telling me just before we started recording, you've got a painting with her in it. Yeah, um, yes. And um, behind me yeah. in the studio here, if I turn the, yeah. the camera on that, yeah, it's a painting of her and surrounded by pages from the book, illustrations oh, nice. from the book. And they're painted to appear as though they're stuck onto the surface, you know, in mm. the quarterly bet fashion yeah. with masking tape. And um, I'm really pleased with it. I think it's one of the best paintings I've done in a long, long time. Mm. Um, and whether it is exhibited or not, I don't know. It might, it's because it's quite a personal painting. It yeah, might yeah, yeah. end up just going in our house and, and hopefully Lily will look back in it and think that was a cool thing that, that dad and I did together and a nice mm. memory of that event but it, the title is the girl with the gifts and you know because I, I really think she's got a gift for storytelling uh, she's got a great imagination yeah so what started your sort of obsession with Trump Roy in the first place or is it something that developed a few years ago I was artist in residence for a space called Husk which was a gallery coffee shop in East London yeah and formerly that building was a mission hall for Danish sailors. Hmm. That meaning in the 1970s, if you came into the docks in uh, East London and you're Danish, um, you could come and stay for free in this, yes. in this place. And, and so the history of that building was very interesting to me. And I started to paint artifacts that belonged to these sailors that had been left behind and were kept in the archive. And I started to paint them as if they were stuck onto wooden panels. Um, and the wood was the same ply that the ships would have been made out of in, yeah. in the 70s. So in a way, they were as if um, the sailors themselves had, had sort of left a memento stuck onto the very ships that brought them. And I did a little exhibition of that, and it was curated by my old tutor, Geraint Evans. And mm. uh, I think it was him who first pointed me in the direction of Quadley Bit. I hadn't heard of it before. And uh, I think it was quite first sort of pushed me in that direction. And, um, you know, it's just this rather interesting discovery, this little quiet corner of art history, these low relief paintings of everyday objects painted illusionistically. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes when you make a painting, things sort of serendipitously seem to fall in a good place. Yes, exactly. And, um, you, you know, you can then work with that and continue in that, 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 that furrow. And things just sort of landed really sweetly with the whole quarterly bet idea with interest I had at the time and still have. And I started to, to dig into that. And, and it, it, it um, you know, it seemed a really interesting way to explore questions I had in painting about illusion and form and shape, yeah. replication of images. Um, and the fact that no one had really heard of quadly bit painting seemed like a gift. So I thought, oh gosh, here's something that could be quite unique to explore. Of course, it's then it's like driving a Mini Cooper. When you start driving one, you start yep. to see everybody else on the roads has one too. And <laughs> I started to encounter all these other artists who work in that that area, not least Keith Goodsford, uh, Lucy McKenzie, and, and other contemporary artists like that. Hmm. Um, um, so I had to find my particular angle 
in that. But it, yeah, in a way, to be honest, I sort of fell into it. Um, yeah. Really by accident. But it, you know, I fell and landed in a good place. So I've carried on in that 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 situation. And and you teach at the um Leith in Leith is it the Leith School of Art you teach at? That's right. Yeah, Leith School of Art. Sometimes people apply thinking it's the Leeds School of Art in Yorkshire, really? and um, where we either disappoint them or we uh, you know it's a better situation for them. I don't know. But Leith School of Art. It's an independent art school. It's in the Docklands of Edinburgh, my hometown. Mm. Um, it's a really small art school and it, it teaches a late modern approach to painting. So there's a, a, a very much a concern for form and shape, um, the stuff of paint, how it functions. So there's a concern for the legacy of painting, but with an eye to what's happening at the moment with a, with a concern for contemporary practices as well. Um, and I love it. Um, you know, it's a good fit. I think for me as an artist, also as a yep. tutor. And uh, the art school has been going 35 years now, I think more or less. It's managed to survive through lockdown. Mm. And I travel once a month to yeah. teach up in Edinburgh. Mm. Well, I certainly find, I find tutoring, mentoring, formally, informally, and, and teaching people very inspiring and very, very motivating. I find the mm. process of, going through an idea which I think I already know mm. with, to explain it to somebody else helps clarify it and change the way I think about it. Um, yes. Um, and I often find that when you're engaging with someone like that, their enthusiasm is quite infectious and can inspire you as well. Absolutely. Do you get that kind of sensation from your students as well? Oh, yes. Well, most of my students are younger than me, mm. you know, in their 20s. So there's a kind of you know youthfulness and enthusiasm there before the art world has knocked out of you and made you <laughs> cynical um and the the chat is less about who's doing what who's successful who's represented by who who's making money and it's more about ideas uh, and painting and what painting has been and what it is and what it could be and how brilliant it is and, and why certain paintings work and certain paintings don't. So that's, that's brilliant to be a part mm. of all yeah. that. And um, yes, you know, it, it helps keep me sharp as well. My students will introduce me to artists who yes. are fairly new, who I haven't heard of. Um, and that's incredibly helpful. That's a gift to be able to have that. Um, and then, you know, that they would introduce me to new practices or ideas and, and ideologies. And then I hope I can introduce them to a few things as well. Um, and then, of course, there's the dialogue with the tutors. So chats yeah. in the staff room over a cup of tea, you know, about what's happening with their art and their painting. And a lot of the tutors uh, make painting, drawing from observation, working in the landscape which is a very different way of working to how I work, which is mostly studio-based. Yes. Um, I don't know many artists in the London scene who paint observationally from the landscape, partly because of the mechanics of being in the city and all that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it's a very interesting, non-cynical environment to work in. And not, not, not perfect, you know, and the Lee School of Art is not a utopia by any means at all, but I do find it a very... Um, uh, a very kind of flourishing, nutritious yeah. place to 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 work in, and you know, you walk in and it, you can smell the linseed oil and the turpentine. Oh, nice, that that sort of whiff that, about yeah. it. Yeah, 
the, the smell of oil, I mean, particularly I paint in oil paints, and it's but one of the mm. reasons, frankly, is because not only just the textural feeling of applying it, but, yeah, but, but the smell I find very reassuring and sort of activating. It's interesting, isn't it? I walk into the studio in the morning and the whiff of linseed oil yeah. has this effect. I don't know if it's because we associate it with good times or, uh, <laughs> or, or solitude or just working things through yeah. um, or even just the very action of creativity. You know, again, coming back to a bit of the theology of that, if, if we might, says, you know, a very sort of liberating process, the very act of creating you know, I think is part of what it means to be a human being without yes. getting too philosophical on it. But, um, and so when we create it, we sort of feel more human somehow. Mm. And, and to me, the smell of linseed oil and turpentine evokes that sense of humanity. Um, <laughs> interesting if, if there was ever an aftershave developed you know, <laughs> with, with linseed oil, whether, <laughs> whether I go out and buy it. That and the smell you get in bookshops as well. Oh, Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and secondhand books have a unique smell of their own. They really do. Too. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you very much for talking to me, Alistair. Um, thank you, William. It's been an unexpected pleasure, actually. It's been a joy. Yeah. Great. Um, and I look forward to seeing your next exhibition. When is your next show? Do you know? Well, like a lot of artists at the moment, it's not much in the pipelines exhibition-wise, but I am developing a new book of my paintings, yeah. which should be out somewhere within the calendar year. It's a fairly major monograph um, with a fairly substantial publisher, a wonderful publisher I'm looking forward to working with. Um, and that's a big project, and, and that's in the, the months ahead. So that's one to look out for. That's great. Well, I look forward to that. Thank you very much. Thank you. So that was Alistair Gordon. If you're interested in seeing more of his work, then check out his website, which is alistairjohngordon.com. Alistair is A-L-A-S-T-A-I-R. So that's alistairjohngordon.com. Um, and if you're interested in Morphe Arts, either getting involved or just finding out what they do, then that's morphearts.org. Morphe is M-O-R-P-H-E. I'll put all of these links in the description of the podcast. Check them out. They're very interesting. Um, please like and subscribe. Come back, listen to further episodes. I hope you enjoy it. And I hope to see you all again soon.